and I'm with O'Neill Wasaki. We are family, uh, family law attorneys in Dallas, Texas. We are bringing you the first ever LGBT webinar on Texas family law. We're very excited to be here, and I hope you enjoy what we're about to present. So here's how we're going to do it. We're going to do four sessions of 30, about 30 minutes each. Um, and those topics are, the first one's going to be on special issues with regard to same-sex divorce. The second one is going to be on the challenges of non-biological parents standing in custody. The third one, we're going to address the prejudices that some gay and lesbian issues might uh, have in different courts and some tips and tricks on what to do about those. The fourth one is recent case law development in same-sex family law issues. And uh, so this course has been approved for 2.0 hours of CLE credit from the State Bar of Texas with a half hour of ethics credit approved. Uh, I will post the CLE number, uh, the Texas CLE number in the comments whenever uh, I, I get back to it. So watch for that number in the comments. How do you obtain the CLE credit? So this, this course is free to watch for anybody that wants to watch it. However, if you want CLE credit, there's a link in the event on Facebook. And click that link, it goes to the Eventbrite, and the fee for the registration for the CLE credit is $20, which is a bargain. So uh, pay the $20 fee and send us your bar number and we will get you approved for the CLE credit. Be sure to comment during each of the uh, sessions so that we know you're out there, we know you're listening and participating so that you can get that CLE credit. We love comments, so comment a lot. We're going to uh, upload a transcription of the videos after uh, this is over, so you can watch for that. We will also be posting in the comments as this is going some different uh, links and articles and cases uh, for you to look at, um, just some additional resources as we're going along talking that might help you if you have some of these issues coming up. Whenever this is all over, we will leave the course up in the Facebook event for a, a few days, uh, for a while, so that if you missed it or had to pop out at any particular time, then you can uh, catch it and catch up on it later. Um, whenever we take it off of Facebook, we will be uploading it to YouTube, to our iTunes account, and to our SoundCloud account. Uh, so watch for it there as well. Um, I want to introduce the speakers to you very quickly. Uh, my name is Michelle O'Neill. I'm a 27-year family law veteran. I, I love to use the word veteran now because it sounds better than saying I'm just an old lawyer. So um, I've been doing this 27 years. I'm a graduate of Baylor University, undergrad and law school. Um, and I've been doing family law all these years. I've been an LGBT advocate for many of those years. Um, and have several cases of first impression uh, that affect LGBT rights. So um, with me today is Carrie Bertrand. Carrie is a 2018 graduate of the University of North Texas College of Law. She was one of the first night school graduates uh, of UNT's law school, so we're super proud to have her. She is also a, a veteran 15-year paralegal, so, so it's, it's a little disarming to say that she's, she's just graduated from law school because she brings with her a, a whole host of experience that assists her in, uh, in being a great, great lawyer. We're very excited that Carrie's going to be joining us. She is actually uh, planning one of the specialties of her practice to be LGBT family law issues. 
We're also joined today by Nick Rodriguez. Nick is a 2017 uh, graduate of the South Texas College of Law, and he is also an Aggie. For those of you out there, you can go whoop. Uh, he graduated with a Bachelor's of Arts in History from Texas A&M University. So Nick is also um, making LGBT rights and advocacy one of the issues that he specializes in in his family law practice. They're going to be joining me and uh, presenting to you today uh, in this two-hour long CLE course. Now, I do have to give you a little disclaimer, so forgive me for being a lawyer for just a minute. Um, nothing in this uh, presentation or these presentations is intended to be legal advice. We cannot substitute our general opinions and thoughts on the law for actual legal advice that pertains to specific situations. So if you are somebody out there with a particular problem and uh, you have specific questions about how the law applies to you, please go seek your own legal advice that's specific to your situation. Um, we also cannot create an attorney-client relationship just because you watch us on this video. So um, please don't think that we represent you. Um, we also uh, uh, would highly recommend that you seek advice from your own attorney. So we're just giving general statements of the law and our opinions on the law, and uh, those should not be substituted as legal advice. All right, any other disclaimers I need to give? All right, well, welcome to our LGBT Texas Family Law webinar series. We'll get started in just a second. All right, here we go. This is the Special Issues with Same-Sex Divorce. My name is Michelle O'Neill with O'Neill Wasaki. Uh, the law firm of O'Neill Wasaki is bringing you this webinar today on LGBT Texas family law issues. So we're gonna talk now about some special issues with same-sex divorce post-Obergefell. This uh, session is gonna be a, approximately a half hour long and it's approved for a half hour CLE credit and a quarter hour of ethics credit. With me is Carrie Bertrand and Nick Rodriguez. Hello. All right, so let's just jump right in. Let's talk about Obergefell. So just to, real briefly, we'll talk about Obergefell in detail later. But just briefly, um, Nick, tell me what the main holding was in the Obergefell case. Uh, so the court held in that case that the same-sex couples have the constitutional right to marry. Um, so basically granting a fundamental right for same-sex couples to be wed. Um, the, and also, too, they also held that you know, marriage is a right that's recognized across state lines, uh, which is you know, obviously what we wanted in that ruling uh, when that ruling was passed. And so that was the U.S. Supreme Court, correct? Yes, correct. And that date was June 26th of 2015, which is important. That's an important date because the Windsor opinion was delivered on June 26th of 2013. And uh, June 26th was also an important date in uh, gay rights and gay history um, for other purposes, which we can talk about later. <clears throat> um, so, excuse me for... Um, have a little bit of allergies or something going on. So um, so the Supreme Court in Obergefell then basically raised um, the right to marry for same-sex couples to an equal protection status, right? And so now um, same-sex couples are considered to have equal protection status, and that was really the first time in history that the Supreme Court found equal protection status for um, the same-sex right to marry. Yes. Um, and the prior case, the Windsor decision, 
that case um, had some bearing on it, but they the Windsor decision didn't go all that way. It didn't go all the way to finding the equal protection across state lines just for all purposes. Windsor, a little bit of factual background history. Um, Edith Windsor and Thea Spire, they got engaged back in 1967. Uh, they had resided together for five decades prior to that. Um, they went to Canada, got married in 2007. In 2008, New York, where they resided, um, they ended up filing their marriage license and New York recognized their marriage. Uh, Thea unfortunately died in 2009 at the age of 77, so she left her entire estate to Edith. Um, and so at that point in time, Edith, when she tried to claim the federal tax exemption, um, she was denied because DOMA, Section 3 of DOMA, uh, termed the, well, defined the term spouse as one man and one woman. Um, so the IRS didn't allow her to take that tax exemption, therefore she owed the IRS $363,000 in estate taxes. So, um, and basically the court in the that Supreme, case. The Supreme, U.S. Supreme the, Court. Yes, the U.S. Supreme Court in that case, um, they had two issues before them. One was a procedural issue, um, whether or not there was any standing um, in the case or for Edith to go forward. Um, and then the other issue was, which obviously they ruled that she did have standing, um, the, the second and biggest issue was, did DOMA violate the Fifth Amendment um, guarantee of equal protection to the federal government, as in regards to the federal government? Um, and the court concluded that they did. Okay. So, so in Windsor, the Windsor opinion then was limited to the Federal Defense of Marriage Act. Yes. And just that one section, found that one section unconstitutional, um, but only as it applied to the federal law, correct? Correct. And so it did not apply it to the states. Yes. And Windsor also did not make the states recognize other states' uh, grant of marriage to same-sex couples. Correct. And actually, when this ruling came, you know, a lot of people within the LGBT community assumed that this was a grand sweeping right. decision, right. which it wasn't. Right. It was very limited. And so then two years later, along comes Obergefell, and we have to make sure we stop and emphasize a lot of people mispronounce the guy's name, but I've actually heard him pronounce it himself, and it is Obergefell um, with a hard G. So along comes Obergefell, and Obergefell actually was a constellation of cases. It wasn't just one guy. It was, what, six cases that were all combined together? Yes, it was... Uh yeah, six cases that were combined together. There were, there were four states that were being sued at the time. And, uh, and so there became a split between the courts of uh, the intermediate courts um, over the rights of same-sex couples in the application of Windsor, right? Yes. And so what did the Supreme Court hold in Obergefell? So the two issues that were posed before the court in that case uh, was one, you know, does the 14th Amendment require states to issue marriage licenses, licenses to same-sex couples. Um, the other issue was, are states required to recognize lawful out-of-state marriages to same-sex couples? And in both those issues, the court uh, rendered a decision in the affirmative. So they said, yes, you know, in both scenarios, we affirm that, you know, this is the way it should be. Okay. So um, bringing that forward then, in 2015, so now um, marriage between same-sex couples is legal, I guess you would say. Um, and, but a, an interesting little nuance of Obergefell was that they actually declared, well, Windsor and, I guess, Obergefell both, declared the Defense of Marriage Acts unconstitutional, right? Yes. And so the effect that that has 
on marriages that existed at that time. Um, so where we're going with this is we're going to talk about like what's the effect on marriages. There were people that were already married before the Obergefell opinion came out. Some of them lawfully in their states, but in other states like in Texas, Texas DOMA had not been ruled on unconstitutional and still existed. So the Obergefell opinion then as of June 26, 2015, found there to um, be legalized same-sex marriage. Carrie, what's the effect on, on the marriages that existed prior? Is, is Obergefell retroactive, or what's the, what's the right terminology there? Um, that's a very good question. I think it's one that's still kind of being sorted out in courts across the country. Um, in Texas, because we have informal marriage, we have that extra complication, I guess, of um, there could have been people who were married informally, and then once Obergefell came out, they could be married legally, and a lot of people were like, do we need to go get married? Are we still married? And then there's the issue of people who didn't realize they were informally married and uh, went and married other people, and so you get into this like bigamy issue. I, th I think it's been a bit of a mess in a lot of ways, and you know, different judges here in this area have presented CLEs on it and have you know, said, hey, we gotta see kind of what the legislature's gonna do to clean this up. So I, I guess whenever I've done the research and kind of gone through my mental um, gymnastics over it, it seems to me that whenever the Supreme Court declares a law unconstitutional, it's as if the law never existed. Right. And so the legal term for that would be void ab initio, ab initio. Mm -hmm. which means that it's as if the law never existed in the first place. So if DOMA never existed in the first place, then there could never have been the impediment to same-sex marriage, which means on the quote-unquote retroactivity issue, actually there's really no question of retroactivity because it's as if the law that declared, it um, that declared the, the act illegal never existed. Um, so I guess my opinion is that whenever we use the term retroactivity, that's actually a misperception because there's not even a question of retroactivity. There's not a question of whether it is or is not retroactive because the law was declared unconstitutional and void ab initio. So, so to me, the answer is simply a yes. Marriages or informal marriages that existed prior to the date of Obergefell are automatically um, recognized, recognized, right? Is that the right way to say it? Yeah. I think part of the problem too, though, is the uh, establishing informal marriage in Texas, uh, particularly the prong of the agreement to be married. When you did not have the ability to be married, there were a lot of people who did not make that agreement. So, And that's certainly the argument that the conservatives or the people right. arguing against informal marriage have made, is that how could, how could a couple be informally married in Texas prior to June 26, 2015, if they could not legally agree to be married. Right. Um, but I think so far at least the majority of, of um, judges and even administration, um, you know, marriage licenses, the informal marriage licenses, all of those sorts of things have actually um, been fairly consistent in finding that they can legalize the marriages that existed prior to Obergefell. It was interesting, I found one case, and it's actually out of the Dallas court, uh, uh, Dallas trial court, um, Alberts versus Richardson, where the district court held 
that um, that the marriage prior to June 26, 2015 was not valid um, and recognized it only starting as of June 26, 2015. And I, that was the only instance that I could find. I'm sure there's some others, but it was mm-hmm. the only one that I could find documented where there actually was a judge who ruled that Obergefell was not retroactive. That case did not go up on appeal as far as I can tell. So um, I'm not sure that that's really anything other than for discussion purposes. But even um, when you look at the tax laws, the the IRS is allowing um, couples that were married before June 26, 2015 to file amended returns. the district clerk's offices around the states are allowing people to file their certificates of informal marriage um, with dates that are prior to Obergefell and recognizing those. So, Do you think some, some of the challenge there is determining the date? Like how do they determine? When how, they started cohabitating. How does that far back do you go? What yeah. date does it start? Yeah, um, so, so <coughs> let's talk about informal marriage. Just right. uh, let's stop and do that. Um, so. What are the prongs of an informal marriage? Oh, um, I, the easiest way for me to remember is the, the couple cohabitated, um, they had an agreement, and they held out that they were married. Okay. So um, agreement to be married is in obviously... In a state with informal marriage. Well, I think it's actually the code says in Texas. Right. Yeah. So you have, to, you, yeah, you have to live together in the state of Texas, you have to tell other people that you're married, and you have to agree to be married. So... Um, you know, and that's a, that informal marriage law actually applies to heterosexual couples or now same-sex couples. So, um, so that's not just a, a special law. Um, and then there's actually what we sometimes loosely term, although this isn't the correct term, the, the informal divorce. And so <laughs> what is that? So that's where, um, that's where there's, you go for two years separated after, so for two years you've been separated from the other person, then there is a presumption that there was no agreement to be married. And so what, bringing that forward as it applies to some of the same-sex couples, what we've been finding is that there are a lot of people that live together that maybe look to God even before the laws of the United States allowed them to be married, just looked to God and decided they were going to be married, whether the laws of the U.S. said they were or not. They called themselves married. They held out as married. They lived together, and some of them in Texas. And so they were married as of um, whatever that date is prior to Obergefell. Then we have, as Carrie alluded to, we have some people that split up. Maybe they changed their mind. They didn't think they were married because the law didn't say so, and they moved on to other relationships and maybe um, uh, got into possible informal marriages with other relationships. And that does create a problem of bigamy, potentially, because uh, of the multiple marriages. It also creates a a lot of other problems. I mean, a problem of community property Property and the presumption, which presumption of marriage applies. In other words, the generally, generally speaking, um, the uh, first in time marriage, or I'm sorry, the the most recent marriage is presumed valid. Mm -hmm. So the prior marriage would be presumed invalid. And so there would be problems with that. Um, so from an evidentiary perspective, if you are talking to a potential client who is presenting you with this question of, am I or am I not informally married, what are some of the things that you would look for 
in advising them whether to go forward with an informal marriage claim or a, or a suit for divorce. So for me, what I like to tell clients is I need probably some witness statements from people that were around them at the time you know, they were holding themselves out to be married. Um, some other things could include you know, lease agreements that they signed together, um, you know, filing joint tax returns, joint bank accounts, just evidence that shows you know, this couple was, for all intents and purposes, married. Uh, cohabitation agreements can be executed. You can put the other party on your health insurance that way. Ring exchange. Uh, yeah. some, some couples have actually had a ceremony yeah. that looks a lot like a marriage ceremony. Um, anniversary yeah. cards. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the ring exchange, I just wanted <coughs> to make this uh, fun factual note. Um, Edith and the Aspire in the Windsor case, they actually exchanged pins um, that, you know, because at that time in 1967 when they did get engaged, it was very much forbidden. Um, so they had to hide it with a circular ring um, that was like a pin that they put on their lapel. Oh, that's so sweet. So, I like that. <laughs> that a good I like that little fact. Um, yeah, so, you know, one of the challenges in, you know, same-sex couples with the informal marriage claims is that, you know, they may not have filed the joint tax returns because the IRS wouldn't allow that at the time. They, and, and when you look at cohabitation agreements, if it was a domestic partner agreement, it may actually stipulate that they weren't married. So those are things that you actually need to look for to the contrary. Um, you know, health insurance for me is the one place where I would really look because that was kind of the, the reason a lot of people would move forward with trying to have um, same-sex marriages was to get health insurance benefits. And so that's health insurance, car insurance, any kind of insurance is a really good place to look for evidence uh, that would help prove that they actually were married. Because what you find a lot of times in these informal marriage claims is one person will say, yes, I, we agreed to be married, and the other person will deny the agreement. Right. So that's when you have to have independent evidence to either corroborate the agreement, illustrate the agreement, or disprove the agreement. I think, I, for me, I think Christmas cards, Valentine's cards, anniversary cards, those are the place where you're going to find the most um, ripe evidence um, the most likely place to find some of that intent evidence of the intent to be married. You might find the Valentine's card, you know, to my loving husband or to my loving wife. And, you know, those are the places where you're going to find references to those key terms that um, will, will help you prove an informal marriage or to the alternative might help you disprove it if they yeah. didn't use those type of words. And that go it goes without saying, so the like you spoke earlier about the presumption against informal marriage, uh, the two-year requirement. Mm -hmm. So the same evidence that you would use to prove informal marriage was the same evidence you would use to rebut that presumption right. for the two-year marriage. Right, so. and and a lot of times, I mean, it, whether it's a same-sex couple or or otherwise, I mean, it, you know, that these these type of cases are very heavily litigated because they have such um, broad sweeping effects on property and. Uh, all sorts of issues. We'll talk about kid issues in the next section, which is a little bit different as to how marriage applies to the kid issues. But, um, <clears throat> but it is uh, it is a place that is is very hotly litigated. In fact, um, it, and it's very expensive to litigate an informal marriage claim um, because the um, the trial of a divorce, where you're trying to prove an informal marriage claim, is actually a bifurcated trial. And so that means you have to try 
to a judge or a jury, it is a jury issue in Texas, um, whether or not there was an informal marriage and get a decision on that. And then you have to come back and have the final divorce trial later because you have so many things that flow from that decision, like community property rights that would be affected, that you can't have it all in one trial together. So those are bifurcated trials, which greatly increases the cost of litigation. Um, Carrie, are there things that you would look at from that cost of litigation standpoint that you would advise a client when they're trying to decide whether to look at the informal marriage or not as to whether to make that claim? Absolutely. Kind of like you'd analyze any divorce case coming in. What are the assets and liabilities? Is it worth, you know, is there an estate here that we need to try to preserve uh, to protect one party's community property that we're trying to make community? Um, I think before someone jumps into that, you need to actually have something that's worth dividing. Like a cost-benefit analysis? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Because, yeah. like you said, it is very expensive, and the even just the evidentiary portion of proving the informal marriage, you might be looking at phone records going way back, text messages. Um, there's no quick and easy way to do it, and it's never going to be cheap. So, And couldn't there be some limitations in the availability of evidence depending on how long the relationship had been? Absolutely. I'm, I'm guessing there would be limitations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not everyone saves those cards. <clears throat> so what about a civil union? So some states prior to Obergefell had a, had a thing called a civil union that wasn't a marriage, but it was a, a partnership of sorts recognized by the state. So what, uh, what do you think the effect is? I don't know that there's a, a bright line answer, but what do you think, you know, that we would do with a civil union? Would it be a marriage? Would it be an informal marriage? I think it would be more evidence of an informal marriage than anything else. Um, I mean, I think a civil union, they require some sort of declaration. Um, so I would say it's more informal and still has to be proved up with evidence. I think kind of like the retroactivity issue, it's still being worked out in mm -hmm. some courts. I don't think it's being uniformly applied. Yeah, I mean, I, as far as I know, like I said, I don't think that there's an answer to that question, mm -hmm. at least in Texas law. In other states, there may be. But in Texas law, I don't think we've had a case go up on appeal that has addressed the question of a civil union prior to a Burgerfell, what, what is it? Mm -hmm. um, although I think some other states have likened them to marriages, to formal marriages. Um, but uh, I agree that at a minimum it would be evidence of an informal marriage, although I think if I were arguing the other side of that, the argument would again be there wasn't an agreement to be married because you agreed to be civilly unioned. So I, I think that it's an open question, that it's something that's definitely, you know, out there for, for decision at some point uh, uh, in the process. Maybe there will come a case along that has that question in it. Uh, let's talk about premarital agreements. So, of course, now, after Obergefell, under the Texas statutes, um, same-sex couples can enter into premarital agreements. But uh, what about premarital agreements that were entered into prior to Obergefell? I think, I think a lot of those couples have had trouble enforcing them because they weren't premarital agreements. There was no marriage. That At least entered into te under Texas right. law. Yeah. Right. yeah. Well, because the statute for premarital agreements requires, or doesn't require consideration. And I think maybe that might be an issue uh, that couples are finding is that, you know, where's the quid pro quo with their contract when it's not, it wasn't statutorily authorized right. at the time. So. 
And then I've even seen some cases where you have premarital agreements entered into under another state's laws that allowed same-sex marriages and marriages entered into there. And then they come to Texas and then have to uh, dismantle everything. So, um, so I, I mean, those are definitely questions and they create a lot of litigation issues. And so, um, as Carrie was saying, I think that you have to do a cost-benefit analysis and look at the premarital agreement and decide, is this worth fighting over? Is it a contract? Is it not? Are you going to raise defenses? The defenses to a premarital agreement under Texas law are so limited. So then you have to look at when was the premarital agreement entered into, which law applied in Texas under that agreement. Is there a choice of forum clause? Because if it was a premarital agreement entered into in another state, it may choose the other forum's laws. Mm -hmm. And so that creates quite a complication when you get divorced in, in Texas. All right, moving on to ethical issues. Let's talk about the ethics a little bit. Um, Carrie, what do you think about the potentiality of fraud claims whenever you're now trying to establish and backdate a marriage, but in the past you've been inconsistent in maintaining that you're married? I mean, obviously it's a problem for the court. Uh, it's a problem for any other uh, party that might be affected if there's the existence of, a, of an informal marriage like an insuring uh, authority or uh, health insurance, any, anything that would make it a marriage or not a marriage is gonna be affected by that analysis. And I'm sure there's part of the reason, like there's a big backlash to not have the retroactivity is that fraud element and how that might you know, affect the IRS has taken care of a little bit of that by allowing people to go back and amend their returns to change their status. Right. So the tax fraud issue may not be quite uh, as big a question as we initially, after Obergefell, feared that it would. But certainly there could be some, some insurance questions um, that could come up from claiming you're not married and then all of a sudden you're married, right? Right. Um, what other ethical issues would you advise a client as far as looking at um, in looking at, you know, whether to establish that informal marriage and moving forward in, in a, a divorce? Separate property claims? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so in, in Texas, community property, uh, Texas is a community property state, and so that means that everything that was gathered together, quote, during the marriage is community property, and anything that you had before the marriage or that you got through a gift or inheritance is separate property. That's an oversimplistic uh, definition, but, but basically what we work with. So, um, so when you're back going back and looking at what's the date of marriage, that's actually the date for starting to accrue the community property. Right. And uh, you've alluded to this, Carrie, before, but, you know, in the benefit cost-benefit analysis of whether to go forward with um, claiming a marriage, you have to look at is it worth it to go through all the litigation and the attorney's fees cost of, uh, that that would take to prove the marriage. Um, but then I think you also kind of conversely, from an ethical standpoint, you look at it in advising the client of, you know, is there going to is this going to create community property? Is that what you want? Is that the best thing for you? It's a very good point. Um, you also have governmental benefits like Social Security, health wow. insurance. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and that that's actually how we've gotten to a point of having a lot of the the litigation that's come about, mm -hmm. like the estate taxes with the Windsor case. Right. 
Um, but, but that's also a place where you would look at, for example, with Social Security, you know, is backdating the marriage going to enable the other spouse to qualify for your Social Security under those rules? Um, you know, health insurance, I mean, all of those kinds of issues. There's, it, to me, it, there's a lot more that goes into the advice to pursue proving up an informal marriage in a divorce case than just, you know, kind of simply the, the simple issues of, you know, divorce or property. And then, of course, alimony. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so alimony in Texas um, is based on there being at least a 10-year marriage, and um, and then there's different amounts and percentages based on years of marriage all the way back from that. So if you're looking at an in, at advising an informal uh, advising a client about proving up an informal marriage for a divorce, there may be a question of whether that date of marriage is going to enable the person to face or uh, to make a claim for alimony or have to defend a claim for alimony in Texas because our statutes are so limited. But if you get back in there in that window of time that that may be something that is uh, necessary to advise them on. Yep. All right. So bringing it all together, (laughs) what does it mean to a divorce proceeding? So obviously in order to get a divorce, you have to have a marriage. If you don't have a marriage, then you don't get divorced. Um, So that's why we're talking about proving up the informal marriage in order to get divorced. Um, and, uh, obviously if you're ceremonially married, you have to get divorced because in the state of Texas, you are married until you are divorced. So if you did agree to be married and hold out to others and, and live together in the state of Texas and therefore meet all those elements of an informal marriage, you know, ta-da, you're married, (laughs) then you must get a divorce in the state of Texas. Um, and if you're formally married, you must get a divorce in the state of Texas to break up your relationship. So those are the reasons why going into this um, to get a divorce, it can be very costly and very expensive. And uh, you don't necessarily want to spend all the money to be that test case on any of these unresolved issues, right? No. All right. Any final thoughts? Looking forward to the next segment. All right. So y'all stay tuned for the next segment. We're going to take a little bit of a break. And the next segment will be challenges of non-biological parents standing and custody. So we'll be right back. Keep in mind that this is a webinar that's aimed at attorneys. This is for continuing legal education. If you're out there watching this, this webinar and you're not an attorney, we welcome you to watch it. But remember that we are not giving you any specific legal advice. We cannot comment on any specific case or situation without knowing all the facts. So if you need legal advice, this webinar is not a substitute for legal advice. Please, please seek the advice of a lawyer as to your specific situation and get specific advice to that. Because if you rely on just what we're talking about here, we're being general, We're talking about general legal principles that may not actually apply to your situation. This is for continuing legal education only, and we cannot create an attorney-client relationship just through the video camera. Okay? Thanks. (laughs) 